Hey, what's up? It's Mo Egger. This is episode three of season one of the Mo Egger podcast. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Cam Miller. Cam is a local filmmaker. And if you're a sports fan, pretty good chance you know Cam's work. Um, he made a film about Ezra Charles, uh, a, a Cincinnati sports icon that I think, sadly, history has kind of forgotten. Cam made a film about the Covington Blue Sox. Pretty good chance before you saw the film, if you did, you had no idea that the Covington Blue Sox ever existed. They did. Cam made a film about them that is awesome. He's got a film coming out here soon that I can't wait to see. It's about Riverfront Stadium, and it's specific to the Reds and Reds history inside Riverfront Stadium. Obviously, Riverfront was also the home of the Bengals, and it was the home of uh, a bunch of different concerts. And Cam's going to talk about the Reds film that he's made that's coming out here at the beginning of September, but also what he would like to do uh, involving a Riverfront Stadium project that revolves around the Bengals and maybe one that revolves around different concerts that were held at Riverfront Stadium. So we're going to talk about some of his films, and including, well, some that he'd like to make, um, some that he's trying to make, like the one the NBA is getting in the way of about the Cincinnati Royals, or films he has said no to. Cam's going to talk about the chance he had to make an adult movie. Um, but the reason I wanted to have Cam on is I love talking with people who love what they do. And and there's you've done this before. Maybe you're one of these folks, but you, you meet somebody, and within a minute of them talking about what they do for a living, you could tell they have just a passion for it. And yes, the paycheck, and yes, the results of their work, but they also love the work itself. They love the process. And I think after you listen to this, you're going to come away with a deep appreciation of how much Cam loves the process of making films, the research, the resourcefulness, um, the storytelling. Cam's going to tell a great story involving Ty Cobb's family. We're going to geek out about Riverfront Stadium, and I'm going to ask Cam what 30 for 30 he would make if he was given an opportunity. I think you're going to love this conversation, even if you're not a big sports fan, and frankly, even if you haven't seen one of Cam's films and if that's you, hopefully by the end of this conversation, you want to go see one of Cam's films. Here's my conversation with Cincinnati-based filmmaker and Cincinnati Reds historian, Cam Miller. I'm excited to do this because you have a uh, sort of a way about you that I, I find endearingly optimistic and friendly, and you're really hardworking, and we like a lot of the same things. And and I, I see your films. I, I sort of pay attention to your process via social media. And I feel like, to use an overused term, we're kind of spirit animals. And so that's that's kind of why you're here. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you, Mo. It is absolutely a pleasure to be here. Uh, filmmaker, right? That's what they tell me. Yeah, filmmaker. So I, I ask a lot of people who sit here, like, you know, how do you how do you decide I want to do X? Just walk me in, walk me through what made you decide to want to be a filmmaker. Well, in high school, I would I was the guy that would make the crazy music videos for the bands, the terrible bands that would perform at the talent shows. I'm like, hey, you know about film. I was like, I can I can put a VHS tape in a machine and push record. And I know I'll, I can edit the old school way. So that intrigued me. I started making short films. I started to do my thing. But it wasn't thought of as a career, or I didn't think of it as a career, until I got um, at, to the Reds. Mm -hmm. And I started at the Reds as a... Um, basically a carny. 
That's what I was. Because remember now, let me take you back to 2004. The Hall of Fame was just opening. Yeah. And it was at the gala. It was my first day on the job. Mm -hmm. I'm using air quotes for the radio audience. <laughs> and um, Greg Rhodes, Chris Eckes, they say, your orientation is going to be at this gala. Just come in, kind of get yourself familiar with the building. Mm -hmm. And then your first day of the job will be 2005 opening day, oh, okay. which was the Joe Randa game. Yeah, Forever Joe Randa, new. sure. Yeah. So in 2004, November, I go to this gala, and I walk in the door, and who greets me but junior and senior, Griffey. Wow. Sparky Anderson's wow. talking to Bench over on the left. Joe Morgan's over here cutting up with Foster. I could see Geronimo with a drink, perhaps one too many, in the corner. <laughs> and I walk in, and I'm like, this is a dream? This can't be real? Is this a setup? Am I going to be pranked? Is there video cameras? This can't be true. Right. But – that's when I realized that I had come home. This that's was my, day one. That's day one. Wow. Day one. You walk in and see that. So, you know, long story short, I become uh, the carny, pick up the balls. Remember the old speed pitch upstairs? Sure. Carney speed pitch. Yep. Absolutely. So I would do all that stuff, and I would do the, you know, right this way to see the trophies, right this way to see all of Pete's balls, mm -hmm. as one does. So in the 1919 exhibit came up. They wanted to celebrate Ed Roush in the 1919 exhibit, and mm -hmm. I said – I can do film for it. I, I know how to do that. Can you? Sure. Let me see what you can do. So I went home, stayed up all night, pulled an all-nighter, seven mm -hmm. pots of coffee, put together all this Ed Roush stuff, you know, where he's talking, you see what I did was I hit the ball, you see, and just <laughs> went through all of that stuff. It was fantastic. Put together this 10-minute film. It played on those monitors. Remember, um, I always call them the uh, synergy monitors because they were the ones that would hang up by the concession stand, those yeah. style, the old school yeah. ones. They would, they would hang up there. And nobody paid attention to it. You put the film up there, and it turned out it was people were stopping to watch it. And I realized, well, people are liking what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. This might be something. So I moved up the ladder uh, to become the assistant education manager. And then they needed more films. And I had to make a decision because not only were the Reds winning films from me as working for the Hall of Fame, um, but other – People were like, hey, they would come in. You did this? Well, I have somebody that's getting married. Could you edit it? Sure. <laughs> so it became, I kind of fell into Ken right. Miller Films. But the greatest thing about it is I got to stay with the Reds as they're my number one client. And yeah. we've been working together since 2005. So. so you do, I mean, you do an insane amount of work for the Reds, for the Reds Hall of Fame. And mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've said to myself, I would love to just follow you around one day because the access you have to historical materials – uh, archival footage, I would. I don't think there's anything that I would geek out over more. And so, kind of just what's what's the coolest thing that you've uncovered, just from a baseball perspective, from a Reds perspective, over the course of of making films for them. I would say probably when I'm I'm working on this film um, called Finley and Western, and it's going to come out hopefully next year um, about all of the baseball fields that were where Crosley Field was. Mm -hmm. So it's League Park, just that corner, how important it was. So I got to see some of the blueprints of some of the, like, League Park, for instance. I got mm -hmm. to see things that nobody's seen before. And having that access, thanks to the Hall of Fame, having the, the ability to go in and people, things that people don't pay attention to, like you're, you're fingering through things, you're thumbing through, what is this, what's this? And you find these, like, random names, and then you take a picture of that name, and you go Google it. You find, well, this guy built the church that was down here. <laughs> and then that leads to, well, this guy built this building. So it gives you a story of where this guy come, came from. He's an immigrant. He's trying to find a job. The Reds say we need somebody to build this stadium. And it turns into a story, which mm -hmm. turns into a film. So things like that, especially um, with the Reds Hall of Fame, it's just – and you're right, man. The access is just unbelievable. I, 
I go through so many programs and yearbooks just to find things, and it's always something interesting every single day that I wake up. I hmm. find something from the Reds or the Bengals. I do some Bengals stuff. Yeah. Too, that is just, it, it blows my mind. I didn't know that. It's hard to keep it from Twitter because I want to tell everybody about it. Yeah. But I also want to try to save some of it for my films. It's yeah. tough. It's a line. <laughs> you know, it was interesting because when, when, when the two teams moved, and, yeah. and I, I thought of the Reds, quite frankly, a little bit more than the Bengals. But, mm. I mean, for, for a team with such a deep history, you know, it, in the 80s and 90s, it, they, the, the history was never really celebrated. You know, right. when they, they finally put up these uh, circular banners in the old park commemorating the World Series. That was a big deal. Oh, yeah. Much less, you know, retired jersey numbers and stuff like that. Like, it's just not anything they did. And so even, you know, as, as a very young man, I, I remember thinking, I wonder if when they move parks, if there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that we're going to see, want to see one day that just gets thrown away. And what made me think about this is uh, working in radio, I, I've now been a part of two moves, right? So we, we had a studio in Mount Adams, and one of my favorite things to do was check out the old equipment and go through old cassette tapes. A lot of that stuff just got pitched, right? Just got thrown away. And, and then with the, the you know, there were, we went from cassette tapes to mini discs, and then everything was being recorded digitally. And I'm like, that's cool. I get it's more efficient, but boy, at some point you're going to want a copy of something significant. And I just, we've moved again. And I wonder how much stuff has just been discarded, been thrown away. And so I thought the same thing in 2002 when the Reds left Riverfront Stadium for a franchise that at the time wasn't great about celebrating its own history. How much stuff that we would have liked to have still had got pitched? Right. Do, do you even know what the answer to that is? That's a great question. I will tell you that there was some stuff from the 97 flood that was lost oh, in yeah. the riverfront flood. Remember, the field I remember was that. dry, yeah. but there was some stuff. People that, were canoeing on the plaza yeah. level. Yeah, oh, yeah, it was unbelievable. And when I started working there in 05, we went to this place, which is where the archives were at the time, just, which is unbelievable. It was called the Dungeon mm-hmm. because it was a dungeon. You've just got – you look over and there's a Soto jersey on a hanger <laughs> in the corner. You look over here, oh, there's Rose, one of Rose's many, four to one ninety two. Yeah, yeah, he wore jersey. nine that night, yeah. 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 <laughs> and Marge Schott's desk. Now, the interesting thing about Marge Schott's desk was – I pulled open the drawer, and there was a box of cassette tapes in there. And I'm like, what are these if they're not labeled? I'm like, this is the Nixon tapes, man. This is going to be some juicy yeah. stuff. I get home. I transfer it all. It was all tapes sent to her by local rock bands <laughs> that were <laughs> celebrating Pete Rose's hit. And they wanted Marge. They'd come on like, hey, this is Joe from Devil's Playground, <laughs> and we're going to have a song I'm gonna, it's called Pete Rose's Hit, and it's just this crazy hard rock version. It was just cassettes. I'm like, this is cool because they're all addressed to Marge. It's, yeah. there's, there's something here like we can keep. I don't know what we would do with this, and Marge would be on some of the recordings. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she would be on some of the tapes. So I digitized all that, took some VHS tapes, digitized all that, and lo and behold, we used some of that stuff for an exhibit later where little – clips that she would say we needed um, a soundbite and because I was digitizing that stuff we had it but it yeah. would have been pitched it yeah. would things like that exist there's so much of that stuff that kind of gets lost in the shuffle and I painstakingly go through stuff man like 16 millimeter I posted something the other day of uh, Veda Pinson at bat mm. I have an entire 16 millimeter reel of an entire game with nothing but Pinson at bat really from yeah from Crosley Field just facing him, because, of course, back in the day, the cameraman would go up, practically shake hands with yeah. the players in the mm-hmm. 50s. And it's just every – like it's a film study type thing where he's being filmed so mm-hmm. he can watch his swing. It's amazing to watch. Just every at-bat from a game, 
He was like three for four. You see his home run. You see his walk. And just a slow mow it and watch his swing. It's just, what are we going to do with that? I don't know, but we have it. <laughs> but it's good it's to have. It's good yeah. to have. Like you were saying, <laughs> there's stuff that you're not going to know about that you're going to lose. And it's unfortunate we live in an era where everything is just so throwaway. Yeah. You know, and you're absolutely right. So I try to preserve every time I get my hands on something. And they're, they're crazy because they'll be like, oh, let's call Cam. We might need this digitized. Uh-huh. What's on it? We don't know. So I'm, I'm kind of wary sometimes <laughs> what I'm going to find. I, I mean, you never know. Marge's collection. Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of that stuff I had in my possession just from the radio station. I had the studio recording on a cassette of Tom Browning's Perfect Game. Oh. And a forty-one ninety-two, and I, I, I gave Tom Browning's Perfect Game cassette to him. That's awesome. Because I'm like, I, you know, you would like this. Yeah. Like, God knows what he's done with it, but. Right. And I just, when we moved, I thought there's there's probably a whole bunch of really cool broadcasts that we are just throwing away, and it kills me that I didn't say, you know what, I'm coming up. Before we demolish this place, I'm going to take all these mail crates, put them in my car, take them home, and I'll figure out what to do one day. And I did not do that. And so I, I wonder, I wondered again, you know, 20 or so years ago, how much of that sort of thing happened with the Reds. And then to a larger degree, what happened in 70, because just yeah. you shudder to think the the sort of stuff from Crosley Field that we'd still have access to if they weren't you right. know, so dismissive of it. Yeah. And that's you're exactly right. And I I've become like the de facto got go to guy for that kind of stuff when they come up with a cassette tape or a reel to reel, like the 80, like well, I think it was the 1979 highlight film of the mm-hmm. reds and somebody put it on youtube it's on youtube yeah. i've watched it yeah, yeah. it's yeah. cheesy it's not awful. as bad as the 84 one the 84 <laughs> one's terrible pete's back with him sliding into the river as the opening montage for, for those who haven't seen it you can find it the the 1984 which was the year pete came back to cincinnati in august the the season highlight video is maybe the cheesiest in an era in which like every team did that every oh, yeah. single year made yeah. a cheesy sort of year right. in review video the 84 Reds one is the cheesiest thing I've ever seen. Of all time. And think about it. They did one from 79 was the first one officially I've seen up until eight, they stopped in 87 because they made that Team History VHS in 1987. Okay. It was so every year you had one. And 84 is terrible. 85 is terrible. <laughs> 86 is terrible. 87 is terrible. Because they they threw it together and you could tell. But there are some things in there that I use all of the time because yeah. you'll find one little nugget of – footage like the organ rising up from behind home plate like it used to mm-hmm. so that's just you don't see that every day and you to see jack doll lift up on a riser like he's at showbiz pizza palace it's unbelievable <laughs> and to have that for 10 seconds is gold to me i get giddy i'm, I'm telling you mo every time they say hey we found some stuff we look at it i cannot get down there fast enough yeah like the scoreboard stuff, for instance, mm-hmm. that I found five, six years ago. So you've you've recreated a lot of the graphics from the old stadium. Yeah. You know, the, you're a hot dog, the clappy hands, right. the walks will feet, haunt. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, how do you get access to that? They found it on a VHS tape, and they said, it says Riverfront Scoreboard. I was like, give it to me, give it to me now. Yeah. I went home, put it in the VHS tape, and I'm watching. Somebody had the Werenthal to sit after a game, 1982, put – the camera f- focused on the scoreboard and then just pushed play on the on the machine, the computer, and let it run through the loop. Yeah. So I was able to take all that. Now, it's terrible quality, so I would just take it and enhance it enough to where it made sense. Mm-hmm. You know, sign them up contract, you know, uh, yeah. the, the sausage, like you said, the Mr. Red's races, those things. So to have – I don't know who did it, but whoever did it, I thank you every day because those 
tweets that I do and when they use it in, on the uh, scoreboard of Great American, it's just the, the the messages I receive from that from people like I remember that. Thank you so, so much. So you cre- recreated the the Mr. Reds race, yeah. and the, the I mean I was with a bunch of people the first night that we saw that, yeah. roughly my age, yeah. and the the joy we all had and you know there's people looking at us going like what is what's the big deal uh the joy that we had seeing that on the the board it, it was a commemorative night I, I don't know if they were celebrating the the 90 team or whatever Something, it was yeah. but that you know there it is between innings that one two three mr redheads and they're racing and the the bugle call and we're wagering on it there was so much happiness among people our age that night that it cannot be. I can't do it. Just, I can't do it justice. Yeah. Oh, and it's yeah. one thing when I post it on Twitter. That's fine. And people right. are like, oh, I remember that. But when you see it at the park, oh, and you're you're you can't wait because you pick number three and you get a beer because and you get you, a beer. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I one mean, one of my favorite things I've ever done. As as a very young adult in the old ballpark, my dad and I used to wager. You know, back when beer was a lot more affordable, <laughs> uh, we used to wager a beer based on the yeah. the, the Mister Red's race. Um, give us an idea because the Bengals. You mentioned you've done some things for the Bengals, a team that is just now. Uh, starting to embrace its its own history, and I've I've wanted them to do so much more. You know, you, you think of we were talking about those cheesy highlight videos, which, by the way, you should like start making them for the current team. But in the spirit of oh yes, the cheesiness of the seventies and eighties and I early nineties highlight videos. Yeah, can you imagine like some like have Jim Day down there on the field, and you got some eighties cheesy music, and that's when the season turned. Yeah, and then you go into some crazy montage. Oh, right, absolutely. So I mean. NFL films would do this and really still does do it for yeah. every NFL team. And, you know, as as a lifelong Bengals fan, on like a random August Tuesday, ESPN would show like the story of the 98 Bengals. And it's like, eh, 3-13. Right. Do we need their story? Right. And you would watch it and it would be nothing bad. It would yeah, be well, greatest season ever. <laughs> like, like at the end, you're like, "Why were they in the Super Bowl? Did you just see Jeff Blake's 80 yard touchdown pick?" <laughs> yes. <laughs> like you know, that film doesn't mesh with what my memories were. So yeah. teams did that. What what sort of things can and do you want to do for the for the Bengals? Well, I am hoping, and now that we've kind of turned the tide, so to speak, of this new era of Bengaldom. I want there to be a Hall of Fame, a physical building, mm-hmm. and I have preached it and preached it, and I've had meetings and I've talked, and Bengal Jim has, you know, on yeah. Twitter has been absolutely on board with it. We need, even if it's just a room, somewhere where you can walk in and walk out and just see some jerseys, see some videos. There needs to be a history. It's we've, the Bengals have been around long enough. In the eighties, I could see not doing it mm-hmm. because you're young. Sure, but now it's that we've had fifty some, plus years, yeah, it's time to have a walk-in Hall of Fame, if nothing else, by the team shop, as you should always build your Hall of Fame next to a team shop. Um, to where we see some of those highlights from the seventies, where mm-hmm. people go on YouTube and see them, but to put them in context, it's looking at a Ken Anderson jersey and then a video screen where there's some kind of highlight film of him, mm-hmm. though an Isaac Curtis. There needs to be something um, that showcases the history that doesn't necessarily have to tell the stories that you're going to get on YouTube or you know NFL films, what have you, but interviews of players that don't get the highlights, yeah. the, the guards and the tackles that block for Ken Anderson. Mm-hmm. What about those guys? Where's their jerseys? Where's their stories? There's so much to tell, and I want to be a part of that in any way I can. So I, I wish I wish the, the origin of the franchise yeah. was, a, was something that was a lot more commonly known. Oh, yeah. Right? It, it feels like we that's just sort of been lost to history. Oh, completely. And it, it wasn't like the, the team started in the 1860s. It, it was launched in the 1960s. It's right. not... 
you know, as a dork with a newspapers.com account, I, I like launched into this thing where I decided to like, all right, let's go back and find the first mention of bringing professional football to Cincinnati. And I ended up reading like years worth of, of just newspaper accounts of the effort to get the team done, the effort to, you know, figure out where they're going to play, what the name is going to be, who's going to be involved, uh, the merge of the AFL to the NFL. And but that that took work. That that took like me being having a lot of time on my hands, but being ambitious enough to say, you know what, I am going to find out what it was like to follow the birth of this team in real time. Right. Because I feel like a lot of people don't know the story of how the Cincinnati Bengals started. Right. I'm just giving you ideas at this point. I mean, absolutely. For free. I love this. I'm glad I came to this podcast. Genius. Because my schedule for the rest of the year. But you're absolutely right, man, because nobody knows. And Riverfront Stadium does not get built if Paul Brown doesn't bring the Bengals here. That's the only mm-hmm. reason that Riverfront Stadium is built. And, you know, of course, that whole history of that park. But – um, yeah, the newspapers.com account, I go through them too, and it, that's what led me to the 1930s to find out that the original Bengals yeah. were named after a stove. Like, <laughs> what? Like, to find that story out, and it's not common knowledge. Right. Like, people thought I was crazy when I made that short film, The Story of the Bengals, a couple of years ago, um, to find out that they, the guy, the head coach, Hal Pennington, who was a famous Cincinnatian who, you know, played at Xavier, had this great career, um, he goes after training camp. He goes to his mother's. Uh, they don't have a name yet. He goes to his mother's house, and she has a Bengal stove range, 1930s, in her kitchen. There's a Bengal orange and black Bengal logo on the stove, and he's like, "There's my team nickname." Like, and that's how it was. It wasn't a focus group. Right. It wasn't like 80 different people from New York coming down to tell you what you're going to name your team. Yeah. So discovering that and then to realize that Paul Brown named the Bengals because of that to yeah. pay homage to that, that's just amazing to me. And, again, where does that belong? It belongs in the Hall of Fame. It does, yeah. Absolutely. Of, of every project you've, you've worked on, what is the one where the, the research and the work that went into it gave you the, the most amount of satisfaction? Uh, I have to say it changes every time because I say the Covington Blue Sox was the first one because I found a team. Like mm-hmm. I found a team that nobody knew existed. Very few historians, they're all gone now, right. knew about it. Um, a federal league team where they had asked Ty Cobb to manage, and he considered managing. And I've seen the contract that the Covington businessmen offered Ty Cobb to become manager, and Ty Cobb's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. No, who has that laying around? It, his son, his, his great great-grandson is a dentist in Michigan. Okay. And he had it in the family archives. Did you and go up and see him? My, he was my brother's dentist. No kidding. Yep. How does that come up? I'm t- Ty Cobb was because my granddad. Because I find out my, bro- my brother's dentist is Tyrus Cobb. I'm like, that has to be Detroit. <laughs> so I do the, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I, yeah, so I, so I go, I find out his name, I contact him. I'm like, I will give you all of the monies. For this, he's like, I can't, but I'll let you take a, I'll, I'll take a picture and send it to you. Just don't mm-hmm. share it. But it was unbelievable to see the telegram and the offer to, you know, ten thousand dollars. Will you, which is a lot of money, nineteen thirty. Yeah. And yeah. he said no because he ended up still playing and he was never gonna. But I mean, it was it was an interesting thing to find. So things like that, you know, the Covington Blue Sox doc, just so so much research and so much fun. The Covington Stars of eighteen seventy five, where Harry Wright came back to play. Ludlow had a ball team. Just that whole history. But to be honest, the most satisfaction I've ever had is this film I'm, I'm finished with, and it's going to come out. It's the Riverfront film mm-hmm. because it's personal. 
I always work on these Finley and Western and the Covington Blue Sox and stars. Those are great. Yeah. And it's so fun to research. You have no those firsthand things. experience. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I as I can remember taking my bike from Forty Fifth Street in Latonia, pedaling it all the way down to Riverfront, putting a lock on it. Those remember those locks where it had the mm-hmm. plastic yeah. around it and you put it on there and you always forget the combination. And then I would go in with my friend to a businessman special and I would just be entertained and blown away. I did this probably 17, 18 times a season, right? Mm-hmm. So I knew Riverfront was my home away from home. So when this project came up, I, I had – it was a no-brainer. I had to do it. And I got so immersed in it. I Flashbacks, going down to the site now, which is a parking garage, and mm-hmm. standing there, you could hear the crowd. If you really just close <laughs> your eyes, I am – it's Field of Dreams-esque, my friend. And I – it's probably given me the most satisfaction because of the personal story. What did you, what did you learn about Riverfront Stadium going in that even as somebody who lived it, you, you didn't know? Um, that at the time it was so well received. You become so over the years. It was what a dump, mm-hmm. what a terrible place. It smells. It's but awful. they didn't take care of it. They didn't take care yeah. of it. Yeah. And when it first opened, it was a marvel of mm-hmm. functionality. That was its purpose. It wasn't supposed to be this quaint little park in a neighborhood where you've got the little different corners and you got you walk up and you know the people. This was get in on the expressway, watch the game visit some restaurants, and get out of Dodge. <laughs> and it worked. And I say it in, in the prologue to my film. It was a machine. Mm-hmm. And we replace machines when they when we don't take care of them. You have to replace them. And yeah. eventually, you know, time moves on. But I've seen the blueprints for some of the designs that they were going to do, you know, if they were going to, which was never really seriously con- under consideration to renovate Riverfront. But it would have been so gorgeous. You know, what, what's interesting to me about Riverfront, uh, as somebody who also grew up with it and lived it, and, you know, I, I've referenced to you on social media, the two things I think I miss the most. Number one, just being able to reference where I'm si- sitting oh, or yeah. where I have tickets by color. Uh, and, and also sort of being able to tell uh, how how much cash your buddies had based on the seats that they were able to get a hold of. And then uh, if you didn't have the blue level seats, sneaking past the guy. But but it's interesting to me, and, and I don't know if your film uh, captures this. I vividly remember what the lower bowl looked like, what the field looked like, the Budweiser sign, Marlboro, the scoreboard, the, 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 the Diamond Vision. I have no recollection of what the concourses look like. Right. None. I, I, on any level. I, I just and, – and I went to billions of games there. And I don't have any real recall of, of what the, the innards of the stadium looked like. I remember in the 90s just how it, it grew to decay because it just felt like nobody's taking care of this. And I remember my dad often telling me, man, in the 70s when they built this place, Bob Hausem and his staff put a premium on the park's going to be clean, it's going to be bright, it's going to be immaculate, it's going to look like the future. And then you would walk through when I was a teenager and it was just you, – you could just tell it was somebody's not taking care of this. Yeah. It reminded me of an overgrown garden. But I have no recollection at all. I can't picture what the innards of the stadium look like. And that makes me sad. Yeah, and luckily – you're absolutely right. I've had to scour and contact people to get photos. I can't believe I didn't take photos. I have a million photos of inside and what the scoreboard looks like yeah. and how green the turf is. But the, the concession stands, it's nope. so hard. No recollection. It's in I remember the, I remember the Hardy Speed pitch yeah. and the blue bar behind home mm-hmm. plate uh, and, and, and barely that. Right. I, it kills me 
that there's not and I've I, like I've I've gone on the internet and Googled Riverfront Stadium Concourse thinking maybe somebody had a Flickr account right. in the early 2000s and put fo- and there's nothing there right and I'm, that bothers yeah. me and I've had to uh, actually take stills from video which I don't like to do unless I have to right it's grainy it's terrible but if that's all you have that's all you have I've probably 25 or 30 minutes of footage of the inside that I've cut up as stills that I'll put into um, not, I've, it's not going to be that long, obviously, but I've cut all those into the best ones where you see the Coors Light guy walking through and you see the restrooms where they were. Boy, those were fun. And <laughs> <laughs> all of the little things where you see the kids coming through the concourse and the gate and the turnstiles, even that, it's just so rare to find a picture. Mm-hmm. So I would find somebody who had video of it back when they would sneak cameras in in yeah. the 90s. And you can see the 80s are tough. The 70s are even tougher. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot in in the late '90s of some of that footage that I've come across. So yeah. thankfully, yeah, which is is right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, yeah. I I do remember because my grandfather took me, and he would get uh, blue level seats once a summer from Kelly Brothers Lumber. Yeah, right there in Latonia, Latonia right? Uh, my my grandfather was was a contractor, and so he would get these tickets, and he would buy an eyebolt. We're both cigar smokers. He would buy an eyebolt cigar, yeah. like an eyebolt blue or something, mm. and sit there and smoke it. And I I can still smell that. Right. I, I think that might have been what made me a cigar smoker, perhaps unfortunately. <laughs> I, so I'm old enough to recall people sitting in Riverfront Stadium buying and enjoying cigars. Oh, absolutely. That's sort of an era I wish would come back. Yeah, and they have um, – well, that reminds me of like in the 1880s they at uh, one of the parks. Um, it might have been Bank Street Grounds. Um, where the first Reds championship was. And by the way, the Reds started in 1882, not 1869. I just want to let you know that, please, because it's not 1869. (laughs) Um, The fight that I will never, ever end. But they would have a smoking section for cigars at these games because the ladies would sit over here and Mm -hmm. don't do it. And if you went over there and smoked, they would throw you out. But they had a smoking section for cigar smokers at these games. And I say, have a throwback night, one night only, bring it back. You and me will be there. I'm in. Oh, absolutely. Oh, 100% in. Can you imagine? Uh, You do a whole lot of Reds-related films, Reds-related projects, but, but, I mean, it goes beyond that. So the Ezard Charles film. Yes. uh, Such an interesting, iconic, and and tragic figure in in Cincinnati sports, and you did a film about him. Uh, What – take me through that process. Was it it easy? I mean, it's interesting – like, there are, like, hardcore boxing folks, hardcore boxing yeah. folks, who revere Ezra Charles. There are casual Cincinnati sports fans who just think of the name of the street, and right. that's it. That's how I had the idea for the film. I yeah. was walking through Washington Park. I was getting ready to go on to the public radio station to talk about one of my films, and I'm just killing time having coffee. And two kids walk by, and... See, Ezra Charles was a boxer, and the other kid goes, no, he's not. He was like the mayor. I was like, no, no, no. I walked up and said, look, he was a boxer. He should have been mayor. He could have been mayor. And this was his story. And I sat down with these two kids, probably 10 or 11, and um, I was just like, they didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And I only know a, a smidget of that information on Ezra Charles. How can I do a film on this guy? Mm-hmm. So I immediately went home and started Ezra Charles and read the book, and then I started get, gathering things. Um, the film was done. <clears throat> It's going to come out when we have a place to show it because mm-hmm. COVID got in the way, of course, mm-hmm. when I was going to premiere it. So I cannot wait for that film to be shown. I learned so much about the tragedy of his life. Like, what a hero that just kind of faded away. And mm-hmm. we, like you said, he's, he's a street. Yeah. And that needs to change because the statue, fine. Um, but there needs to be a story told 
The book talks about his whole life. There needs to be just that Cincinnati section to where he was the king of this town, mm -hmm. absolutely the king of this town, and now he's just another one of those forgotten legends. Yeah, he's a street. He's oh, yeah. a street he's man. Street. That's all everybody thinks. Yeah. Uh, what, what was what was the most difficult to project, to execute, to do that that maybe made you go, you know what, I can't finish this. This is never going to get done. Does, does one sort of jump out to the top of the list? Absolutely, and it's a film that's probably near and dear to your heart, the Cincinnati Royals. Yeah. I have 75% of the film is finished. Okay. And it's amazing. I love it so much. The problem that we're running into is rights because the Sacramento Kings still exist. Mm -hmm. And the NBA— <laughs> Barely. But yeah, they exist in <laughs> according to the newspaper. Right? Yeah. Do newspapers exist? I don't even know if they exist anymore. So they have the rights to everything Cincinnati yeah. Royals. Yeah, and the NBA— is they're about as bad as the MLB. The MLB. I said that on purpose for you. Um, the MLB. Podcast is over. Get out. <laughs> Get out. You're walking back to Kentucky. Um, but yeah, it's every time I think I'm going to finish it and we're going to set a premiere date somewhere, um, they come in with a, I don't want to say cease and desist, but we encourage you to prop maybe, remember the old baseball cards where they would, like you would get in the post and they would airbrush out like say so you got a the logo, car. yeah. yeah. I, I would I have all these gas station cards yeah. that I would get as a same, kid, yeah. Here. Yeah, and it would just be a, a white Reds top and a right, red. <laughs> and and you know what it is, but yes. you can't show it, right? Yeah. That's pretty much what I'm getting right now from the powers that be on this is that because of the right situation. Now, I am not giving up. There are talks going on that we can possibly uh, come to terms because I'm doing this for free. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think they're having a hard time grasping is that this is something that I'm doing on my time, my dime. Yeah. And once they realize I'm not trying to make uh, George Lucas money on this, <laughs> Disney money on this, they'll, they'll let me do it, put it on YouTube. I'm not – again, it's, it's one of those things where it's a story that needs to be told because nobody knows mm -hmm. except from the shirts you wear, except <laughs> for the pictures you see, you know, that we post on Twitter all the time, yeah. the score books. So um, I can't wait for it to get done. It's almost done. The one regret I have is that I had this whole opening to the film planned out, um, and then they tore the gardens. Mm -hmm. um, I had got – we were going to have Oscar there. We were going to have some of the players. Oscar was going to be the focus, and he was going to be at the center court. And just him on a chair with a basketball in his hand, okay, if you can picture this. Mm -hmm. As he's sitting there, and there's images – kind of on in a circle going around of his career and radio broadcasts, which I have a few of, not a lot. Really? But I have a few. Yeah, I wow. have a few. Um, and it's, you know, Oscar for two and, and the world's win. It's just this montage. And then he's just sitting there looking around. And then players start coming through, his teammates start coming through the concourse with basketballs, yeah. walking down to center court. And this was a thing that was going to happen. Like yeah. this was – we had permission. We were going to do it, and then it just got taken away from us because they tore it down. We couldn't get in there in time. Yeah. But they were all going to sit at center court, and that was going to be the prologue to the film. And they just kind of shake hands, look at each other, and then it goes into the film. It was the greatest opening to my, one of my films of all time. I may still do something like that with um, a single seat mm -hmm. at the garden and where, where it was, like in center court, find out where the center court would have been, mm -hmm. you know, the empty field, and then put the uh, – Put the chair there, and if we can get Oscar to do it, or we can get somebody to you know kind of participate. I mean, the, the franchise left in '74, yeah. so we're you know, I mean, the, the you're 
time is of the essence, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, yeah, and it's just such an incredible story. I love, and I, like you, I love everything about that team. It's it's remarkable. Number one, I, I don't think I think there are people who don't realize how good they were at times. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't think there are people who realize how bad their ownership was at times, right. that they had this nomadic existence where they're playing games in Cleveland, and <laughs> Rochester. And right. They played some home games in Omaha before they actually moved out. I mean, it was, and you know, again, the newspapers.com thing. If you read about the Royals the last four years, I mean, even the people who are covering the team describe this incredibly bizarre <laughs> experience right. of this weird right. NBA franchise. It's also... I have probably three or four game programs, and I have an ad uh, for – it's just a team picture, the games on the radio, and the, the schedule for the, I think, 65, 66 season. It's huge. It hangs in, in my basement. There's not a lot of Cincinnati Royal stuff out there. No. And when the gardens got demolished, I wrote about this for The Athletic. I just said, you know, I can't help but wonder, not just the Royals, but – the Beatles and the the WWF and all the you know the different the NBA All Star all the different stuff that happened here, are we preserving it all? Is it just going to get uh, medicine ball and, and wrecking ball and we're done? Like how's how's this going to work? And I just I think there's such a dearth of royal stuff specifically that I wonder how much of that stuff is is dust right now. Yeah, it's a shame. A lot of stuff went to private collections, of course. And sure. Every now and then you'll see something pop up on eBay, and you're like, wow, I want to have that. Well, hold on, let me mortgage the house again. <laughs> so it's, it can be tough, but you're absolutely right. And that's one of my biggest regrets. If you ask me, what's your biggest regret? I didn't get to do a film on the gardens. Like mm-hmm. like you said, the Beatles, like the hockey teams that hockey, were there. Yeah. Just, there's so much history, and it just now it's an empty space, you know, it's, which is why the riverfront thing is so important to me because we're getting to that point now, 20 years, yeah. it was, it's been gone. And, and it's like, what? How can it, this it, be possible? It bothered me. And, and look, the, the gardens toward the end, it was, you know, the roller girls. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, that's the first place I watched a UC basketball yep. game. It's, you know, it housed both, you know, Cincinnati college basketball teams. It right. housed – I mean, think of a who's who of NBA players from the 50s and 60s and early 70s. Iconic figures. Uh, The Beatles. A ton of uh, just incredible rock groups. Um, As a kid of the 80s, the WWF. Oh, yes. the first time I ever saw that. That And and so when when they knocked it down a few years ago, it it felt like we all just sort of shrugged our shoulders, yep. right? Yep. And I remember going like, "This is this is a pretty significant venue in this region's history, not just sports, but this region's history." And the Port Authority is going to come in and blow the place up, and we're just going to sort of shrug our shoulders. I'm not sure that's how this should go down, but but yet there it is. Yep. And remember when they tore down Riverfront? How it was this? Every news channel was there with drones or helicopters. Yeah, at the time. right before had, New Year's. It right. was insane. Yeah. yeah. And just, it was just packed, and you see all the cameras and the cheering. Which the cheering kind of bothered me, by the way, just to let that be known. The sure. cheering kind of bothered me. But everybody can celebrate or, you know, <laughs> to, to their own degree. It's yeah. fine. But yeah, the gardens, newspaper blurb. blurb. Yeah, they're turning it down today. Nobody's there. Remains, uh, I'll never forget this, 96. Watching the the Cyclones play in Game Seven, I believe, of the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, and it's the most raucous crowd I've ever, and not misbehaving, just raucous, loudest crowd I've ever been a part of. That I've that I've ever, and it was you know six seven thousand people. Right. Uh, and there's no way of capturing that, and that no. bothers me. And there's not a lot of video from the place. There's photographs you can find here and there, but. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That place, I 
I remember going to some Mighty Duck games there. Yeah. And it was just the and that's the Mighty Ducks. The Mighty and Ducks. it was loud. I'm like, this is unbelievable. What a venue. It's like I can't imagine what it was like when the Beatles were played in here out loud. Yeah. You know, you know, whatever it was, sixteen thousand screaming teenage girls. So it's like you just when things like that go away, we lose something. It's not just about what the aesthetics of the place were. It's the memories and the sounds that, you know, flowed from that place. And, and you'll never get them back. As much as I love Great American Ballpark, and I am so glad that we have Great American Ballpark, mm-hmm. it is never going to have that that feeling of riverfront. The fireworks were louder. Yes. The crowds were louder. Mm-hmm. You felt... And, I'm doing one on the jungle, which is, which is I'm doing a mm-hmm. sequel. So it's Riverfront, Remember, the Reds version, the jungle, and then the shows. So like the Stones, Paul McCartney. So yeah. I, cool. But the jungle one, like it was loud, like deafening. They talk about how Seattle and the noise and, mm-hmm. the, you know, 12th Man, whatever. Uh, Riverfront Stadium was so loud. And that you're absolutely right. The Gardens was the same way. Like it was for hockey. It was insane. Yeah. Like, it was crazy how loud it got in there. I think the the layout, the engineering, and the acoustics of Great American Ballpark lend that place to just quiet. Oh, yeah. And I, aesthetically, I don't like that boat out there in center field, but I love it. As I mean, I, I love it. I, it's I, fine. F- yeah. I, I am higher on it than most. Yeah. Um, but it never gets loud. And no. that's no knock on the team. I mean, just when they're good, you know, I, I it just – Having been at loud venues and having been at Riverfront, GABP at its loudest is a whisper. It oh, yeah. is. I'm not trying to sound like the old guy. I just it is. You're just absolutely right. The way it's built, the, it's open. The, there's places for the sound to go. You cannot replicate what we had at Riverfront just from a, a noise uh, standpoint. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's is that the most important thing at the end of the day? No, but yeah. there's something about um, having that home field advantage. And in baseball, it's a real thing. Sure. When a pitcher's on the mound, remember Johnny Cueto? Yeah, dropping the ball. Yeah, yeah, it's like that is a real thing. Well, now because the you know the the pitch con thing, the, the things That's in his true. hat, he can't yeah. hear it. Now That's the true. pitcher has to drop pitch the fingers. Oh. What made you decide to get into filmmaking? Um, I realized that I was uh, talented at many, many, many things, but really not really, really talented at one thing. I can compose music. I can play music. I can do film. I can do this. I can do that. I can write. Whatever reason, filmmaking has been that visual storytelling. I always come back to it, and it's been my livelihood now for going on 20 years. It's something that um, when I'm in my editing suite at my house and I have my headphones on and I'm going through footage from Riverfront Stadium or the Bengals or whether it's even a client that's hired me to do something, I am in this place where I am creating something. Every day I wake up, I get to create something that nobody's ever seen before. Mm And there's something magical about that. And in the era of social media and in the era of YouTube, being able to put my creations quickly on there for somebody in Japan to see or Canada to see that I couldn't do in the 90s because please send me self-addressed stamped envelope and I'll send you a VHS (laughs) copy of my music video from Devil's Advocate, whatever. It's just – it's such a unique job to have. I get the biggest thrill waking up every day, putting on the coffee – and what am I doing today? What's on the schedule? Mm-hmm. And when it's Reds-related, man, there's nothing better than sitting there with a game on the old Crosley radio mm-hmm. and then just sitting there editing something for the Reds Hall of Fame or for another client. I'd like to branch out to other baseball teams, actually. And yeah. some, I've talked to a few of them, Candlestick, Pittsburgh, about their retro scoreboards. Yeah. And they found some stuff. 
So maybe I'll go through it and maybe kind of be that guy, mm-hmm. you know, the, the old scoreboard sure. guy. I would do that. I would drop everything. Yeah. I'd leave it all, man. I think there's, I think there's, 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 if, if you, if they, if ESPN came to you and said, Cam, make a 30 for 30. Yeah. What would it be about? Very good question. What would it be about? I would like to do a film on fandom. Okay. Um, just in general, sports fandom, how it's changed, mm-hmm. how you used to go to the games at Crosley Field, shirt and tie after work, mm-hmm. to now you've got people that have had 25 beers and are ready to fight everybody and everything, right? For, until you talked about fighting, I thought you were referencing me. <laughs> not not yet. People. Not, not yet. That's, that's the next podcast. Um, <laughs> but I had talked about this with Chris Atkins. We're probably going to do a film on the Reds version of fandom. Mm-hmm. Um, right after... I went over there for a meeting um, right after a day after Winker and Soros got traded. Mm-hmm. And Eckes, who is always Mr. Positive, he's a curator of the Reds Hall of Fame, one of my best friends, great guy, and my boss. He was down. Mm-hmm. Like, he's like, I don't know how we get through this season. And this was before the whole opening day thing. Right. So he's like, I, I, I like him. You should do a 30 for 30 on the opening oh, day thing. You could do I could do a <laughs> streaming series on Hulu. And I know just the guy to talk to about that. He's sitting right across from yeah, me. That'd be fun. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, but, yeah, um, Winker and Soros get traded. And Eckes is at his desk. He's, he's got his hands on his head, and he's just like, I don't know what we're going to do. I mean, this Los Rojos exhibit's great and all, but nobody's yeah. going to come here this year. Yeah. I'm like, so we start talking about what does it mean to be a fan? And mm-hmm. we started just writing down notes. Like, is it because your dad took you to a game and you got hooked? Is it because your grandma took you to a game? Is it because your friend gave you a baseball card of Will Clark and now you're addicted to Will Clark? Whatever it is, what made you become a fan and what does that mean to you? Not because you're a part of a clique or you're, you want to be a part of the city and it's yeah. the rah-rah, everybody's doing it type thing. Why are you a fan? What levels of fandom are there? So I would like to you know, talk to some sports psychologists, talk to coaches, fans. I think that would be really interesting these days especially. Yeah. I, I remember when they lost to the Giants – in 2012 and at the time I was living downtown uh, by myself and they lose that game it's a day game Mm -hmm. so there's plenty of afternoon and evening in front of you and I go home and I just remember how sad everybody looked it looked like everybody was walking away from a disaster I'm not trying to be overly dramatic and I went upstairs into my apartment and I sat there in the dark for hours I mean and 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 I remember saying to myself, why, why am I letting this do this to me? I, I'm, I'm an adult man. I, I have some things going for me. Why? And th- this has happened to me on like four or five occasions it, where it, it based when they lose. And it could be the Bengals. It's often uh, UC because you know how much I love the Bearcats. And I go, this, this shouldn't be affecting me. This shouldn't be putting me in. So, and I've, I've tried to – I've said to people, I can't explain. I can't explain it. I don't want to experience it. Um, but there's a part of me that feels bad for non-fans because you don't you don't know what this is like. Um, and then, yeah, the payoffs are incredible when your teams do win. But I remember sitting there in 2012 going, what is it about this that bothers me so much? And I could never come up with an answer. Right. I was I was sad for the city. I was weirdly sad for the players. I was sad for myself. I was it. And it I mean. I think that game was on a Thursday. It it was like the next week before I emerged from this personal funk about a, a baseball team. And if I could ever get somebody to explain to me that, right, uh, that would help. That's you're absolutely right, and it, it it's one of those things where 
everybody has different experiences. I remember that 2012 game there. I was there with my son and my two brothers, and we walked out, and it was it was funeral esque. Yeah. The city was just in this cloud. Like this was our. How did we? How did this happen? We were going to win. Today was a day. Yeah. We were going to go on, and this is. It's a microcosm of life. You get punched in the gut. You have to dust yourself off. Go back to work. You have no stake financially in the Reds. You have no stake financially in the Bengals, although some of us do if we you know, partake in certain websites or places. Uh, sure. But uh, there is this thing, and I want to try to find out what it is. Is is it possible to find out? I don't know if it is. But I want to know why we get so upset, why we get so euphoric. Personally, me, as I've gotten older at the ripe age, ripe age of 48, I have got to the point where I don't know if I care anymore. Mm-hmm. The modern game, I don't know if I care. Not in the way I did in my 20s when big UK fan, UK wins the championship, I am loving life. Then they, they go on this, they hire Billy Just, let's be that yeah. old. And it's like, why? this can't? And then I realized my kids are over here. They want to go to the park, and I'm screaming at a television. I, I, I need to reassess things. I need to understand why I'm, I'm being like this. So I started writing notes down, and it kind of got put in the back burner until Chris Eckes mentioned, you know, how do we carry on? Mm-hmm. Um, there is an answer there somewhere, and I don't know how to go about it, but I want to find out. I want to talk to a lot of people. Um, as long as I got ESPN money, my friend, I will make whatever they want to make. Netflix, Hulu, Disney Plus, uh, I'm available. Yeah, well, if, if you can do that. I mean, fandom to me is 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 interesting and you know like when i was a younger guy when i was a younger man and and even a kid you know there was the whole like well i've been a fan since the 90s and you know i mean i say to my my radio show all the time like you know you need bandwagon fans you need casual fans not everybody's going to be diehard now to me the the lifeblood are the people who are like you know what screw this i'm out because if everybody's diehard then i think there's less incentive for for these teams uh to win and and i mean there are times where i I find myself envious of of people who are like, oh yeah, last year when they stunk, I checked out, didn't watch, didn't pay attention, didn't care, and I'm I'm jealous. Yeah. Like also, it, it didn't bother you that they you know lost ninety games or that you know whatever happened, and I find myself jealous yeah. of of those people. At the same time, it's like when the Bengals are really good last year and they go to the Super Bowl. I had people in my life say to me. You know what? This is really cool, but I'd stopped caring and stopped paying attention, and so now I'm jealous of the people who are enjoying this ultimate payoff. And I would say, like, there's no, there's no right or wrong way. There's yeah. no right or wrong way to, to, right, to do right. this. Uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot of things about fandom that I think could be explored and tapped into. Oh, absolutely. And I just talking about you know the Reds and when it, I think when it, when I started working for the Hall of Fame and I got to see how the sausage was made, so to speak. <laughs> you know, I kind of learned like, huh, okay, yeah. this is how it is, but. I still, of course, went to games. I root. I live and die with the pitches. I want them. But I, I, I think I've changed the dynamic to I want to enjoy moments. Yeah. Joey Votto going on that streak last year for awesome. home runs, one of the greatest things in my lifetime. Yeah. And we didn't win anything. But I got to experience that with my son and my friends, and we got to see something that you never see. Hunter Green throwing 100 miles an hour and striking out how many in a row. Awesome. You, how, when are you going to see that again? I have learned to enjoy moments because I cannot control what they are going to do with this team. The 
the, the rebuild mm-hmm. that we hear so much about, the dirty <laughs> word. I don't care anymore. I want Joey Votto to hit seven, eight home runs. I want Aaron Judge for the Yankees to hit 80. I want the Reds to, to win, of course, but I also want moments where there is just some something that when I can tell my grandkids – I saw Joey Votto hit this home run, and it started this streak. Whatever it is, enjoy that. Yeah, it's, it's funny because it's, it's what I struggle with most for what I do for a living. Like, I just tell people sometimes, like, I just, just want to watch the games. Yeah, just watch the games. <laughs> just, yeah. and, and you can't. I mean, for what I do, you know, you, but right. like I, I, just, I just like the games. Yeah. And I feel like there is a chunk of fans, and I think this is really true about the NBA, yeah. but I think there's a, a segment of fans for which the games are just irrelevant. Yeah. And, like, and I, to me, like, that's still that's still what I care about the most. Yeah. I still love the games. Right. You want to see some last-second shots. You yeah, know, I want to see I'm some glad. cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, Steph Curry hitting from 50 feet. That's awesome. Right, yeah. But the games, the, there's the wins-losses thing, and it's this blurred line now. Like, does it matter? And with baseball, they've talked about, do we shorten the season? I kind of think maybe because people have checked out for 162 games. They just it's about going drinking beer and watching some home runs, yeah. some dingers. How can we bring the importance of winning? Because people want to complain about oh we're losing, but do you really care at the end of the day if they win or lose? Do yeah. you really in your heart care? Well, yeah, but it, I mean, there's a difference between caring and letting it dictate your your Absolutely. levels of of, yeah. of happiness. I, I just I'm you know, and again, like it, it's an interesting subject to me because you know, like I. I'll I'll find people who are really 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 analytically minded. Yeah, and I man I'm all about that stuff. Please, but but if but if we're going to the park, you know I'm not talking about so and so's war nope. OPS plus and nope. and and so I I will I will find myself telling people who are really into that stuff and they feel like they've got to educate like you know what let people consume a product however they want however they want let them enjoy what they enjoy and if they. If they want to know about ERA plus, they'll find you. Yeah. But but don't talk down to them. Don't dictate. You know. Well, you you you're not a smart fan if if you don't if you don't know this. Right. Right. And that's the you know baseball is just one of those things where at the end of the day, it should be nine innings with no magic runners, yeah. and it should be not seven inning double headers. It Thank should you. be not the, the the game has been the same for a century and a half. We've changed some things about the game. Of course, we've changed some nuances. Of course, we've changed the pitching feet from 45. They don't throw underhanded anymore. There have been rule changes. But the essence of baseball is why it's the greatest game ever. It's the same. It's the absolute same. You can analyze. You can dig the ERA plus, the bips and the flips and the whatever (laughs) it is. It's awesome. I'm all about it. But at the end of the day, What's this pitcher going to do against this hitter? I love matchups, which is why the All-Star game is so fun. It used to be fun. Yeah. You know? I mean, it used to be great. Yeah. You know, I want to see, you know, uh, Nolan Ryan against Will Clark. I want to see that. Mm-hmm. That's the matchup in the All-Star game. And it didn't matter. It wasn't for World Series or the, right. you know, just let me see that matchup. And those guys were trying. Who gets it was, the better it, of who? Yeah, it, because it was an ego thing. It was like, I'll show you. It was awesome to see. Yeah, I've, I've, I've you know, I have friends who are all for magic runners. And, and, I, and I go, you know, look, there, there's a difference between evolution and change. Yeah. Right? Completely. And so I'm all for watching anything evolve. Oh, yeah. And, and modernize. Like, that's well, like good. like football. The NFL, look what they did. Instant right. replay. They made things more efficient. Right. I mean, that's debatable. But they have tried. The NFL has tried. The NBA has tried. Um, in baseball, you can't change baseball. The rules have to stay the same. The players can get stronger, bigger, faster. The money can be thrown around in the billions. At the end of the day, nine innings, pitcher, defense, offense. Well, and I've joked for the people who just go on and on and on about, like, you know, quickening the game. Yeah. And I go, well, how about one out per inning? Well, you can't do that. Like, well, why, why not? not? 
Yeah. I mean, if if we're just going to get cra- like one 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 strike and you're out. Well, you can't do that, Mo. I'm like, well, okay, but I would have said uh, 10 years ago, we're going to start the 10th inning with a, a dude on second base who didn't earn the right to be there, but, but we are. <laughs> yeah. So who's to say that we're not going to have someone who raises their hand and go, oh, yeah, you know, one one out per inning, right? and we're going to get this bad boy over in uh, in less than 90 minutes. Yeah, I fear that, in, you know, and I hope I'm wrong, in 10, 15 years it's going to be uh, six-inning home run derbies. Just pick your best players. We'll be our best pitchers. Yeah. And it's just you only get points if you hit it. It'll be like watching the All-Star home run derby, except right. that'll be the competition. Who is the coolest person you have met or uh, put in front of a camera in the process of making a film? Um, the coolest person that I oh – gosh, there's so many great ones. I mean, you're talking the grade eight. Yeah. Uh, I would say – I have two answers. One um, – Johnny Bench, um, because he yelled at me. Mm. Um, you asked for an autograph, didn't you? No. Well, I actually should have. I probably <laughs> would have got a better response. I was at the Sean Casey um, induction, 2012, mm-hmm. I believe. And I was instructed to walk around the Hall of Fame with a little handheld camera and just film everything, mm-hmm. do a quick edit, give it to him on Sunday so at the gala they could show. And Marty yeah. would say, hey, here's the behind-the-scenes look of this weekend. And, you know, the music montage and – um, I should have used "You're the Best Around." Remember that song? That would have been awesome. Karate Kid. Yes, Karate Kid. I should have used that. Now that I think about it, that would have been so cool with Casey giving <laughs> Eric Davis a big hug. You're the best. I didn't do that. Um, but anyway, I was asked to film. They forgot to give me a badge, so they made one handwritten: mm-hmm. "Cam Miller Hall of Fame All Access." Just Slapped piece, it on my paper. Yes. Safety <laughs> pin. Paper. Nice. Yes. It was like, you know, when you go to a party, hello, my name is. Yeah. Right? They slapped that on me. I'm like, this is going to go over well because I'm going to walk into the big red machine room where they were all of the players, Morgan and Bench are cutting up, Griffey's there, Geronimo, and I was going to talk to Bench. I just needed like 30 seconds, and I walk up, and he's like, who the hell are you? <laughs> I'm like, didn't you see my sticker? <laughs> it says Cam Miller All Access, pal. Who are you? So I had to explain to him, and he's like, I'm not talking to you. I didn't. I don't know who you are. You could be anybody. <laughs> so I had to go find Rick Walls. I had to go find Eckes. Like, will you please explain to Mr. Bench? Once I sat down with him, though, and he joked about it, mm-hmm. and it was hilarious. And to get to know, to talk to him about baseball, that was probably the coolest moment because I'm like, I shook your hand on the Riverfront Stadium Master Turf on July 20th, 1982, as part of the Baseball Bunch Parade around the field of Riverfront. Wow. One of my greatest all-time wow. things. You're eight years old. I'm like, this is the greatest day of my life. And, of course, he did not remember that, much to my chagrin. <laughs> um, it's kind of changed the whole interview, to be honest with you, Mo. But um, so that was one. Just That was my first time really sitting down with a player one-on-one and talking to him, and that was so much fun. Um, in an intimate you know, setting where we could talk about not just home runs, and we all know about the Al Michaels call, but yeah. what was it like playing at Crosley? Because mm-hmm. you played at Crosley. What was that like? Mm-hmm. You know, you, this whole story, that was fun. The other one was working as a carny at the Hall of Fame when, I, when Wayne Gretzky walked in. With his really? wife, Wayne Gretzky, unannounced. He's in town for some event. Walks to the door. I'm at the box office. Wayne Gretzky walks in. I'm like, that's, that's Wayne Gretzky. That's a great one. So we're all, like, climbing over each other to go give him the tour of yeah. the Hall of Fame. And I, of course, being slender and young at the time, win. <laughs> I go over. It's like, Mr. Gretzky, write this. And I give him the tour. And it was the greatest tour because at, when we got – to the end. And I'm bragging about the Big Red Machine, Mr. Gretzky. As you can see, they won in 75 and 76. Some might say the greatest team of all time. <laughs> and I'm giving him the spiel, and he's just like, yeah, yeah. He gets into the Hall of Fame, and he stops in his tracks when he sees the plaques. Yeah. And he just looks around. And this was back before the renovation, so you had all the plaques hanging 
on these, you know, you had them on these wires, remember, and you would go around and you could kind of like walk and get lost in them. Very Field of Dreams-esque on a cornfield, right? You're walking through them. And he stops, and I let him have his moment. His family goes to the gift shop, and he's walking around. He spends an hour reading every plaque, reading every name, every stat, and he says, all that stuff you were telling me in there, that's awesome. These guys here... This made Cincinnati baseball what it is. Yeah. And I never forgot that. I, I, it changed. I, I took a tank bus to work that day to, to, <laughs> for traffic reasons. I sat on that bus, and you could hear, like, sad music behind me, the filmmaker in me. I'm hearing the soundtrack of the sad music. I'm sitting there like, Wayne Gretzky totally didn't like one of my tour. But he sure did put me in my place, and I was forever thankful for that because it changed my perspective, yeah, right? Sure. Like, the big red machine, great. What about the 1882 guys, Bid McPhee? What mm-hmm. about these guys? You know, Ted Klazuski is this bigger than life here, but who was he? What was, what was it like to be around Ted Klazuski? So just a remarkable, a remarkable experience meeting him. And, he, and of all play, the great one, of all people, yeah. put perspective and kind of changed my way of filmmaking. That's pretty cool. Pretty neat. All right, it's hard to top that. Yeah, you can't. Uh, best, weirdest project you've been approached with? Hmm. Weirdest project. I was once asked to edit an adult film. Oh. Yes. Amateur? Professional. Uh, professional. Say no? And Say I yes? said no only because I was afraid that it, I put that on my resume. I would never get another job. The Reds would find out. I wanted to do you it. Change your just name. to do it. Pseudo name. I thought about having a nice you know, yeah. porn name. Yeah. Like Monster Rod Camstein or something. <laughs> but I did not do that. Oh, boy. I did. <laughs> I did not do that. I decided that my career was more important. Uh, it would have paid very well. Um, but, yeah, I'm glad I How said How do you no. get that call? Out of the blue. We've, we've got some footage here. We need it slapped together. Appreciate <laughs> slapped. it. I mean, yeah. how do we how, – how does that happen? He found me um, over one of my – You think, would think if you were going to choose to make an adult film, yeah. you've got an editor – a filmmaker in mind. He saw before one, you shoot the right, footage, right? You think so, but this yeah. guy, I guess, saw one of my. High, I think it was the 1990 Reds exhibit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was, and I did a montage of the Reds rap footage, <laughs> yeah. and it was this weird kind of 80s look, and he wanted to have this 80s, early 90s look to his film. I'm gonna so the, I'm gonna watch this film again and see if it gives me pornographic vibes. <laughs> It might. Yeah. It might. Yeah. You, all you got to do is, like, turn down the volume and put some uh, funk music on. Completely yeah. changes your dynamics of watching that. Wow. Well, I was going to ask about non-sports films, but uh, I'm afraid what the answer is going to be after that. So, <laughs> uh, I'm a huge fan of yours. Thank big you, fan of your work. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, I hope we can do it again sometime and uh, continued success. Thank you, my friend. You're great. All right. There you go. That was awesome. Uh, Cam Miller is uh, tremendous. I-, I cannot thank him enough for his time. Check out the premiere of his film. It's uh, going to be held on September the 9th at the Reds Hall of Fame and Museum. Um, while you're checking stuff out, the first two episodes of our podcast, if you missed them, number one, Paul Doherty, longtime sports columnist at the Cincinnati Inquirer. We chatted with Paul about two weeks after he wrote his last column and uh, gave us a really good sit-down interview and then uh, talked with Anjanette Levy as well, Law and Crime Network, anchor slash reporter. Um, she went to Law and Crime after a very long and successful run at Channel 12, and so we talked about all the trials she has covered, her pivot from Local 12 to Law and Crime, and of course, the time that she appeared on an episode of The Late Show with David check out both of those episodes if you've missed them and uh, we'll be back next time thank you for listening to the moegger podcast